Welcome to Rooted in Revelation, a podcast dedicated to making God's revelation our foundation in all of life. I'm Nick, and today Nate and I get to have a conversation with our special guest, Dr. Jim Neuheiser. Jim is the director of the Christian Counseling Program and associate professor of Christian Counseling and Pastoral Theology with the Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. For 25 years, Jim served as the preaching pastor at Grace Bible Church in Escondido, California. He is the director of the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship and an adjunct professor of biblical counseling at the Master's College. Additionally, he is a board member at both the Biblical Counseling Coalition and the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Jim has written a number of books, is an elder in his local church, and is a husband and father. So, Jim, I just want to thank you for being with us today again. And uh, just to get our just to get started for our listeners here, uh, can you please give us a very brief account of your salvation testimony? Sure. Um, I was raised in a home where my mom was a liberal Presbyterian and my dad didn't like church. He was a lapsed Catholic, Roman Catholic. And when I was in ninth grade, I had a friend who invited me like to a Young Life meeting and then to his church. And I argued and fussed with him for quite a long time. And then I realized, hey, I think I believe this. And so I think it was when I was 10th grade, I was baptized. And by the grace of God, uh, you know, there's a lot after that, but I came to faith kind of out of a non-Christian home. My mom was converted. She's still alive in her mid eighties and she was converted. She actually wanted to see if I was joining a cult. It was a Bible church. And so she went there and heard the gospel. And uh, so that's how the Lord brought me to faith. And I don't know how much further you want me to go after that in terms of testimony. If you just want to like uh, outline key points, maybe uh, in your life that led you to where you are today. Yeah. Well, something that might interest you young guys would be that, uh, the church in which I was converted was very unusual. You might not have heard of S. Lewis Johnson, but he taught at Dallas Seminary. And he was probably, you know, in the 60s and 70s, one of the most important professors. He didn't write as much, and so that's why he's not as famous. But a lot of the best of the faculty of Dallas were coming to our church. It was called Believer's Chapel in Dallas, and uh, a lot of the best students. So uh, Greg Beal, when he was a student at Dallas Seminary, was at our church. Ray Ortland was my youth leader. Bruce Walkey sometimes was teaching the Bible study on like through the Psalms or Proverbs on Wednesday night. Haddon Robinson was there. Uh, I could name several other people probably that. So I had an amazing experience of being very well taught at a very young age. I also was blessed as I benefited not just from being taught truth, but also relationship and discipleship that I, from high school, probably really was hoping that the Lord would be pleased to allow me to go into ministry. And so kind of wanted to do for others what, you know, had been done for me. So that's how I kind of went into that trajectory. If you want me to go a little further, uh, as I was finishing uh, college, I thought about how Jesus did not begin his public ministry till he was 30, elders are older. So actually going into college, I made the decision to major in business. And my idea was to kind of get a tent making skill and do 
uh, ordinary work in my 20s and then see what the Lord did after that. I actually got involved in kind of a part-time seminary program, leading the youth group, occasionally getting to preach, but while I was working for a large corporation. And then when I was still in my early 20s, uh, my company sent me to Saudi Arabia for a couple of years. Uh, again, long story abbreviated. Suddenly, the guy who was leading the underground church there got kicked out. And I was made the preacher. And I was in Saudi Arabia for a total of six years, five of which I was the main preacher of this group of two or 300 people from 25, 30 different nationalities of every possible denomination and still had my other tent making job, but it was an amazing time of fruitfulness. And then we got kicked out of Saudi Arabia in 1987 and went to Westminster Seminary, California, helped plant a church when I got done and so forth. Well, that's really awesome, Jim. And I know I've heard your story before. Uh, for those of you that don't know me personally, I used to live in North Carolina, just like five minutes down the road from you, Jim. And uh, I got to know you because you were my elder in my in my local church, uh, which was a was a great blessing. Um, but uh, yeah, I forgot I forgot the piece about you being in an underground church in Saudi Arabia. And I think that's where you actually met one of the other church members at it. Living yeah. faith, which yeah, is funny. <laughs> yeah, just winding up here decades later, and there's a man in our present church who had been in the group in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. We haven't seen each other in 30 years or something. Yeah, it's wild. Um, okay, so I think that uh, your wheelhouse here, for those of you listening that may not know Jim as well, he, he is well-versed in biblical counseling. Uh, what I want to do is I, I'd like to go ahead and uh, take a moment to have you define what biblical counseling is and how it would differ from other forms of therapy or counseling. Uh, do you think we, that's a good place to start, Jim? I'll try. I, I have lectures that go about 12 hours that cover that question, but I'll, I'll abbreviate. Uh, the premise of biblical counseling would be that the only infallible wisdom ever given is the Bible. And so as people are seeking to live a life to the glory of God, which is what we've been made for, when they face problems that are spiritual in nature, then the best wisdom in all the world is found in the scriptures. Uh, just as, I guess, like in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, and so forth. And so it's out of a conviction that people need wisdom to live well, that many of their problems are primarily spiritual in nature. And the best thing we can do is obviously listen well and then seek to bring God's wisdom from the Bible to help them and to do so in a way that is always... Uh, connected to the gospel, not mere moral wisdom, but evangelically gospel-derived wisdom. And there is a whole spectrum of various views of the best way to help people. You could go all the way to secular psychology, which typically you know, would look at us as merely physical beings, not spiritual, and would deny so many things the Bible says about us especially sin. And then you have 
kind of in the middle, you have a lot of people, some people call it Christian counseling as opposed to biblical counseling. And these are just labels that are commonly used. And many who would call themselves Christian counselors would be Christians who have become experts in psychology and have not had as much training typically in scripture. Many times they'll get state licensed for you know, having passed the qualifications to be some kind of therapist. And I think that certainly those people care about others. They you know, meet with them and there's a spectrum there in terms of some would pray, some would bring the scriptures in. Many of them would focus on bringing at best common grace wisdom of psychology, trying to help people. So from my standpoint, positively, the best possible training someone could have if they wanna help others with their spiritual problems would be to know the Bible very well and then to gain wisdom and how, how to apply that to help people's problems. So that's what my job is. And I would acknowledge that within psychology, that there are some common grace principles that may relieve suffering, that there are, be it through medication or through other techniques of talk therapy or other such things, that there may be certain cases where it will address the symptoms of an issue I also acknowledge that there are things biologically wrong with people, which I'm thankful for psychiatrists and doctors who can help identify brain illness or other problems and address those. But as a biblical counselor, I would probably say that most of the problems that people in your church are having are primarily spiritual. As Ed Welsh said, there may be a physical problem. There is almost always a, there is always a spiritual issue to be dealt with. And I have some categories, I guess, in terms of why I would be wary of psychology in that, or secular psychology, in that they do not understand who man is. We've already talked about that. Second Corinthians 5, you know, that to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, we're both body and soul, as opposed to merely bodies. And that affects what they see the problem is and how they treat it. They don't understand why we exist, which is for the glory of God, as opposed for personal human happiness is the goal. They don't know what's wrong with us. You know, they think, well, something went wrong with your biology, which sometimes is true, but they deny sin. And even many Christian counselors won't want to talk about sin. They haven't been trained to work in those categories. Uh, and then they don't focus on the one solution, which ultimately is the gospel, which brings forgiveness, which gives us a new nature, which makes us capable of overcoming sin, of resolving conflict, of having peace, and, you know, so forth. And so I'm thankful for some common grace aspects of psychiatry and psychology. I'm also very wary of how much of it has been infected by a, a worldview that would be contrary to scripture and a place where biblical counselors would you know, differ even from Christian counselors is we think there are a whole lot wider spectrum of issues the Bible is sufficient to help people with than many who've been highly trained in psychology who would see a very narrow range of what the Bible can help people with. That, uh, 
Yeah, <laughs> I, I bet uh, you do have 12 hours of lectures on that topic. And uh, I think that that was a great, I mean, you're the you're one of the authorities on it, I think. And uh, that sounded great to me. Uh, Nate, do you have any follow-up questions for, uh, for Jim based off that? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think what we got here going forward, uh, we should uh, should be okay with it. So yeah, you can continue onward. All right. Uh, well, let's see then. So you talk a lot about the gospel in relation to biblical counseling, which is one of the reasons why um, I so appreciate the idea of biblical counseling as opposed to Christian psychology. Um, I don't know if I ever told you this, Jim, but uh, when I was in undergrad, before I got into insurance and everything, um, I, I, I became a Christian when I was 18, and I, I really liked psychology. It was my favorite class in high school, and I, I thought I wanted to be a psychologist. Then I was like, oh, Christian psychology. And uh, once I became a Christian, and then once I became more steeped in revelation and, and more familiar with the scriptures, you know, I, I started to understand how the gospel doesn't just start our start our faith, but it's what, you know, matures us and grows us and carries us through into glory. Um, what would you say, I guess, what is the difference between what a pastor, like a pastor in any generic gospel preaching church does in their counseling versus like what a biblical counselor who's been trained would do in their counseling? Like, is there a, an obvious big difference potentially, or is it kind of similar? Uh, I guess I would say I'm trying to do what pastors should be doing. Paul and Peter both tell the leaders of the church to shepherd the flock of God. Paul instructs Titus that we need older women who can train the younger women and give them wisdom in their homes with their husbands and their children. And so to me, I've actually likened kind of the rise of the biblical counseling movement to kind of a small R reformation where it wasn't the discovery of something, it was the recovery of soul care. And you can even go back to some of the reformers and especially the Puritans, and they saw that the role of the leaders of the church was to care for actually the very problems that people still have today. You have people who are anxious, you have people who are depressed, you have people who are in conflict. And these are the ordinary issues that most people face and the Bible has the wisdom to help with that. I also think it's really important. I mean, obviously, only a believer is capable of fulfilling the goal which the Bible teaches, that we would glorify God and please Him. Only the believer has the Holy Spirit who has united us to Christ, who set us free from slavery to sin, and empowered us to walk in righteousness. So, actually, my goal it, one reason I left the church, I was very happy in California, where I was an ordinary pastor who did some extra counseling and teaching, was I want to equip future pastors to not just shepherd their own sheep, but also to equip others in their church to shepherd. One of the verses that was the um, kind of launch pad of the biblical counseling relaunch in the early 70s was Romans 15, 14, where Paul writes, and concerning you, my brother, and I'm also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. And so he's speaking to the whole church, and the word admonish there is the Greek word from nutheteo, which some, you know, have nutheteo counseling, but the, the concept is that you want a church full of people who 
know how to do biblical peacemaking. You have a church full of people who can mutually encourage each other with the word and offer wisdom to each other. It's like having conversations like you read in Pilgrim's Progress with your children where Christian and faithful, hopeful, and they're building each other up in truth and helping each other through the ordinary struggles of life. And so I, where biblical counseling experts, I guess, can occasionally be of help would be, and this is actually a nice thing about the biblical counseling movement is just in God's providence, sometimes you get lots of experience in the type of situation. And so you can teach others or, you know, past, like I have a pastor that was one, my intern many years ago, and now he's a pastor in the Midwest. And he's had a very manipulative, abusive husband, not a husband who was beating his wife, but a husband who was uh, mistreating her in many other ways. And he was pretty successful in manipulating, the husband was pretty successful in manipulating the church as well. And this pastor called me, described the situation. And well, I've seen lots of these and I've read a lot about. And so I could not even tell him what to do, but just walk him through maybe to help him recognize patterns and see how the scripture would speak to how this man needs to be confronted. Even like, you know, he's denying certain things and here's in scripture how you can kind of corner him. Here's the difference between genuine repentance and uh, worldly sorrow. And, and so I think having people who are more experienced, they can help others. But like even like here in Charlotte, there are a lot of churches in the area that want to send, even actually Caroline more than myself, where women in the church who need help and the pastor doesn't know what to do with her. And she hears that my wife does biblical counseling or he hears that the pastor hears and he wants to ship his problems to us. And I want to help churches equip their own people, their own leaders to shepherd the sheep, their own women to disciple and counsel the younger or less mature women, not to do all their counseling for them. So I'm, I'm, not, against, I'm not against biblical counseling centers because there'll always be plenty of churches that aren't doing this where people have need and uh, they're gonna be churches that may need help with special situations. But really my, my objective is to get churches caring for their own people with the all-sufficient word and not to be intimidated by that responsibility the Lord has given them. No, that's really awesome. And it, it makes me think of the fact that like, let's say that you do have a biblical counseling center and then you get, you know, that person eventually, their problem is fixed to a degree where they believe they can handle it on their own. You know, I, I think most people in a situation like that wouldn't, go back the rest of their life to the biblical counseling center, but they are going to be in their local church. And how much better would it be for that person if their pastors or brothers and sisters who are trained in, in biblical counseling were able to, you know, speak into their life week after week, even, you know, intermittently throughout the week and bless and encourage them, you know, to not return to whatever, whatever sin they're, they're clinging to. So yeah, um, that's, that's wonderful, Nick. And I, I would agree that First of all, I think a strength of the movement, generally speaking, is we do want to be a church-centered church movement. Uh, and some of the major biblical counseling organizations talk about restoring biblical counseling to the church. But even when it comes to, like, I had a biblical counseling center. I was helping to run one in Southern California out of our church. 
we tried to have the churches where these people went to come, okay, you want help? You don't know what to do? Well, you bring him and I'll help you help him. That's actually how I got started, where I had someone with a problem. I took him to a biblical counselor, but I sat there as the pastor and watched what the biblical counselor did. And so, and then as we counsel people, we are pushing them towards their local church. We don't think somebody is really ready to graduate unless they're well established in a church where they're known and they're being discipled. I actually wrote a little booklet called Help, I Need a Church. And I wrote it mainly out of our biblical counseling ministry because I think a common thread of many of the people who would come is they need a church which is faithful to the essentials of, I actually have 10 marks of a church, not a lesser number. And uh, in this, I, I just, this is why you need to be a member of a church. And this is, and this is what you should be looking for. And unless you get into a solid church, actually, like you said, they'll be back. And the church is, it is the hospital. It is the training ground. It's, you know, we're meant to just help people get into the church and participate and be cared for there and then to be caring for others. Amen. Um, I'm going to ask one more question real quick and then I'll, I'll hand it over to Nate here. But uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and we kind of walked, walked here, uh, the Bible doesn't have the office of a biblical counselor. Like we're saying, you know, it, it could be a pastor who's engaging in that. It could be a lay person. I mean, there is training for it, but if you know the scriptures, hopefully you're naturally engaging in this. But um, for somebody who is pursuing this as a degree program or wants to be a biblical counselor in a formal setting, would you say that there are any base qualifications that should be met before a man or woman should or can become involved in counseling others? Sure. I, I think that ordinarily people who, all people, all men who aspire to be elders should to some degree be biblical counselors. It doesn't mean they need to get a degree or get formal certification, but just like Titus talks about, they need to be able to refute sound doctrine Peter and Paul say they need to be shepherd, able to be shepherd sheep. And just like people learn other ministry skills, I think that's a ministry skill that should be standard equipment. I also would look to someone who wanted to be a biblical counselor to meet the essential qualifications of leadership. Obviously, you know, for elders, deacons, but even if they weren't ready to be in one of those offices yet, they should at least be characterized by those things. Uh, Titus talks a little, in the book of Titus, Paul talks a little bit about the older women and some of their qualities they need to have as well. So I think, you know, spiritual maturity, an exemplary life, people who know the Bible well, and then there are people who have gifts for certain things. Like there's some people who meet all the elder qualifications, except they can't teach. And I would say those people are probably deacons. And in the same way, uh, you know, it's, you don't just need someone who's godly. You, there are people who have skills, who connect well, who can teach the scriptures well. Some ways, counseling is harder than preaching or public teaching because you can have a script when you're teaching. Uh, the congregation usually doesn't talk back and knock you off your plan. And uh, one of my students at RTS said the, the counseling labs are much harder than the preaching labs because you, you can exactly prepare for what's going to happen in the preaching lab. But in the counseling lab, they practice counseling each other and they throw curves at each other and they you know, raise new problems. 
And so somebody needs to know the word well and to be able to teach it, explain. And just a huge one is caring for people. The busiest counselor I know right now is my wife. And I think one reason so many people want her help is she doesn't just know her stuff. She graduated from our program. She's ACBC certified, but even more, she cares well for people and women, especially they, they're looking for someone to be a mother in the faith, to pray with them, to point them to the scriptures and the churches need many, many more of these. Yeah, that's, that's so good. Um, and I, my family was fortunate enough to, again, know, know you and know Caroline. And, um, you know, my wife was even meeting with Caroline, I think either weekly or biweekly. And, um, you know, she just had nothing but positive things to say about the kind of discipleship that was, that was occurring. It was years ago, so I don't remember the specifics, but I do remember seeing so much grace through that and, and just being, you know, so thankful for your family and in my family's life. Um, but I want to hand it over to Nate here. Um, yeah, Nate, what are your thoughts on biblical counseling? Do you have any questions in particular for Jim? Yeah, I could. I, I was trying to think of a couple, and I, I think I have two, but I'll just ask one of them, the better of the two for now. Um, so I, I was going to ask you, Jim, what what is um, what do you think has caused the the disconnect in the church, where it seems as if uh, usually individuals in the body of Christ don't really talk about their their personal issues as much? Is it what is the influence? I guess that indiv individual or like individual cases where people are just, I guess, more separated, not really together as the church usually is supposed to function and usually I think does function. But like, do you know what I'm getting at? Like the, the sense of uh, how people have just kind of, people aren't as personable about what's going on in their lives and people aren't as maybe upfront as maybe they used to be. Yeah. And it's funny for me, the old guy and you, the young guy saying, oh, for the good old days. Um, so from my standpoint, churches like people, I guess, are varied. But I think there are some cultures which create, there are some churches that create a culture where people do share their burdens and their problems. There are churches where the elders are visiting and keeping tabs on their people and building a trusting relationship where people share their burdens. There are churches where uh, there are godly relationships cultivated among the women and the Titus two thing is happening better than in others. There are also church, I mean, I've even seen people kind of culturally where I'm from a family or even, you know, our, our people, whatever our little culture or subculture is, we just keep our problems to ourselves and just kind of endure it. I think that it's possible for good church leadership to, to some degree, change the culture of a church. One would be in the preaching to make application that is really relevant to the kinds of pe problems people have. And you know, in my mind, preaching should be exegetical with a theological foundation. It should also point to Christ constantly but I also believe it should be applied where people are and not merely in the abstract. And so you get to, I don't know if this happened when Nick was at our church, but like I, I went through the book of Ruth. And so you get to Naomi and she thinks God is against her and she's despairing. And 
say, well, you know, there are probably people here today who are struggling like Naomi is struggling. And I want you to know that we have women who would talk to you if you feel like God is against you and everything has gone against you. And here's a way without not walk forward now in front of everybody, but you know, this is available to you or you're, you know, even Elijah wants to die. And you know, they're probably today in this room of 200 people, hundred people, two or three people maybe who have thought, I wish I were dead this week. And I want you to know, we, we were concerned about you and we want to you know, talk with you and the Bible has answers for you. And, and this also can be cultivated in small groups where you have leadership that helps people to learn, not necessarily to confess the details of every sordid sin, but at least building some more openness. Um, back to the preaching, Lloyd-Jones and preaching and preachers talked about how preaching on the one hand can reduce personal work. If you're preaching and answering the questions people have about life, then they don't have to come talk to you about it sometimes. It also can create more personal work because suddenly they realize, hey, the Bible speaks to these problems and my pastor may be able to help me. And so there, there's some of each. But I, I do think that, uh, I mean, the people I see tend to be the ones who tell their problems. Sometimes they do have to be pretty desperate, especially to come see a stranger or even come to one of the leaders of their church where, and, you know, back in my previous church in Saudi Arabia as well, where you'd have people who were seemed to be getting along just fine and they would come and say, we just can't stand anymore. There's abuse going on in our home or, you know, one of the spouses is getting drunk or one of them has been unfaithful and like, you'd never know it on Sunday morning. And sometimes people out of desperation come, but I think we can from the front at least both from the front in the way we preach, but also the way we shepherd help to create a more of a church culture. There are other church cultures where that's not going to happen. I mean, there are also, there are some churches that want to draw a crowd. And if somebody wants to be counseled, they will send them off to a professional licensed person that the church might be generous and say, we'll pay for half of it or something, but we just don't do that. And I would regard that as pastoral malpractice in terms of you're not shepherding the flock, especially if you're sending them to someone who will not give biblical advice. And there are counselors who are Christians and may be very sincere who do not know the Bible very well. And we tend to go with what we know the best. And if you spent years of your life studying secular psychology, and that's probably where you're going to go. And that will sometimes not provide the help people need, usually. One of the most disappointing things I, I've ever heard um, was when I found out uh, that I won't name names or anything, but uh, that there was a couple whose marriage was, you know, going through a really rough patch. Um, really bad situation. And the church that they were in, the pastor basically said, Hey, you know, we're not really equipped to, you know, handle these things here, you know, go see, go see a secular, you know, therapist, psychologist, whatever, psychiatrist. And, um, you know, again, I won't name the church. I won't name the couple or anything like that, but it was super disappointing because again, you know, it's almost like there's a person who is a steward of, the church and the gospel itself 
sending the, per the people away from the very thing that is the source of our hope and our joy and our peace and our reconciliation. And um, there was a Paul Washer. I love Paul Washer, but he has like a three part teaching series that he did at a conference where he talked about the gospel and its centrality in counseling and how, um, you know, he'll start like his pastor, if there's ever a marital conflict in a church, will basically start by asking them to explain their understanding of the gospel. Because, you know, if you don't understand the gospel and forgiveness and reconciliation, you're probably not going to be able to experience those things while moving forward. And you need to address the first things first. Um, Jim, I don't know. What do you think about that? Would you say that that's a, a good way to approach two people who say they believe in Christ who are having maybe marital or just personal issues um, in their, in their counseling effort? Yeah, I, I can address that in a couple of ways. I liked what you said that I, first of all, when I'm meeting with people, if I don't know them really well, I ask to hear their testimony and I want to make sure they get a credible profession of faith in Christ. And then I'm going to point back to the implications of that and exhorting them and helping them as we keep moving. I mean, the marriage passages are about applying the gospel in the home. And so that's just the beginning is you're, I mean, Jay Adams actually, who is kind of the founder of the modern biblical counseling movement said that he called it pre-counseling if they're unbelievers, that they're incapable of pleasing God. And my objective is to help people please God. And so I need to evangelize them first that uh, fish don't fly, generally speaking, they need to become birds. So that would be one objective. But the other also would be the way I teach it would be that I kind of mentioned this earlier, I don't want merely moralistic counseling that, you know, Paul would ground his imperatives and his indicatives as he wrote his epistles that here's what God has done for you. Here's what the gospel is. Therefore, act this way. And so I would be appealing to people as Paul did, like he says to the Colossians, I mean, to the Ephesians, you did not learn Christ this way. No longer walk as you used to walk because you've put off your old self. You've become a new person. And so you know, you were dead and to sin. Now you're alive. You've been set free from slavery to sin. So changed behavior is grounded in what God has done for us in the gospel. How we treat each other, grace especially, is grounded in forgiveness. All of this is grounded in the gospel. And just taking a step back to what you were saying about the referrals, uh, Ezekiel 34, where the Lord condemns the false shepherds of Israel where the flock has become food for the beasts and there's no shepherd to care for them. I mean, for someone to say, I am a shepherd, but I'm not interested in sheep <laughs> is a big problem. There was one a book by uh, Deepak Reju and Jeremy Pierre about the pastor and counseling. And my favorite line from the book is shepherds should smell like sheep <laughs> that you're, you're around people, you care for people. And, uh, it's an awesome, you know, Hebrews 13, 17 says we're going to give account to God. And so, you know, it's tough work. I, you know, when I hear that I'm being pushed into a situation, there's been abuse or adultery or horrible conflict, it's emotionally exhausting. And yet where our calling is like Jesus ran towards those who were hurting when I'm tempted to run away. But if you volunteer to be a shepherd, then you your calling is to run towards sheep who are hurting. 
one of the most impactful things, and I was actually going to say this next, so you beat me to it, but um, that's actually one of the most impactful things you ever said to me. One of your, um, one of the other elders at Living Faith uh, out there in Charlotte, you had, we were talking about him and, and I think as I was telling you that I really appreciated him and I, I may have expressed that like, I didn't know why, but like, I just thought he, he was very, very wonderful as a shepherd. And you said, you know, I think one of the biggest things about him that makes him different is that he runs toward pain. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, when you said that to me, I was like, I, I thought about, I went home that day thinking about all the men who I have been affected by. And, you know, I, I was the pain <laughs> that they were running toward. I was the pain that they were, you know, um, counseling and, and pouring their life into. And, um, you know, I think when we all think in those terms and we, we look back, the people who most affect us are the ones who run to us when we're in pain. It's easy when we're in a house, when, when we are in a house of mirth to have company, but, uh, and, and to be there, you know, but, but to be a pastor, like when you said that to me, I just realized that your job, you know, is to run into pain, run into burning buildings time after time after time. And, uh, you know, I, I think, I don't think you can do that well without the grace of God and without, without that driving behind you. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's so good. I also think that's probably one reason why the best, if like, if someone gets trained in biblical counseling, probably the best thing, best way to express it would be to find ministry in a church where they're doing something in addition to counseling, <laughs> because the counseling will suck the life out of you. So teach the youth group, run the women's ministry, um, run the worship or something to, there's only so many hours of this level of human need that some people could take. People have different capacities, but if, if you're doing what you're supposed to do and you're weeping with those who weep and you're, you're dealing with these people in the hardest season of their life and the hardest hour of the week and the hardest season, and you've got a bunch of those, Again, different people have different capacities. And so and I've heard of people who do like biblical counseling 30, 40 hours a week. I don't think I could do that. But it also in a church, if you have several people, hopefully it's being spread out more reasonably. A biblical counseling center, you kind of attract a huge number of problems in proportion. You know, like when I was work, I learned a lot because when I was doing biblical counseling, typically four or five extra cases a week, I would see more difficult cases in a year than you might see in five or 10 years just pastoring a local church. But that also was some wear and tear, at least for me. Sure. So Jim, I think, um, you know, we're not, we're not a huge podcast by any means, but, um, we are growing and we may eventually have, you know, some pastors and churches who don't have any formal background in, in uh, biblical counseling training and things like this uh, beyond their studying of the word. And there are classes and training programs that are out there to, to help people in churches be equipped for these things. Uh, so how can a church in that scenario that doesn't really have any experience in biblical counseling uh, begin to equip themselves for the work? And uh, should, should it be like training classes, reading books on the subject, or is there something better? Yeah, I guess I would start from the top. Like what I'm doing at RTS is on the higher end in terms of getting people through a master's degree, 
uh, Southern Westminster have doctoral degrees, uh, Midwestern as well. And so there'll be very rare people who get to that level. I think it should be built into people's training if they're gonna get an MDiv or something like that for being in pastoral ministry. Uh, there are different organizations that seek to equip the church for biblical counseling. Uh, one of the oldest is CCEF based out of Pennsylvania. They've been connected to Westminster. Uh, they have kind of online classes primarily that are, you don't have to be a seminary student to take them. And uh, those uh, have some quality to them. Uh, I'm involved with a group called the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, which is also one of the oldest. We're not as big or famous as CCEF, but we've we've developed training materials that many churches are using that have kind of taking you through the basics of what is biblical counseling as opposed to other approaches. What's a methodology for counseling? How do you handle typical problems that people come across, anger, worry, fear, depression, conflict, marriage stuff, family, kids. Um, and so it's kind of a survey. So that can be a way of equipping. Uh, you know, you go back to the Puritans, they read their Bibles, they helped people, they searched the Bible for answers, but then they did write books and direct, you know, like Baxter's directory and things. So, um, you know, there are excellent books written. Sometimes you learn when you face your first adultery case as a church or as a pastor, and you're glad that there are biblical articles that might help you know how to navigate that problem. But you know, I would highly commend, in terms of for a local church, something like IBCD's program where you can watch videos as a group. And there are, cert there are different levels of certification. Now, you know, interestingly enough, the greatest preacher in the English language in the 19th century was Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones in the 20th probably. And neither one of them went to seminary or got a degree in theology. So degrees and certifications don't necessarily mean you're the only people who are qualified and not all of them are qualified. But for most of us, uh, you know, doing a certification means you didn't just read the book, you actually had to pass a test and show you know what you're doing, got feedback. So you'll learn more if you take a class for credit than audit. So uh, there's a national group called the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, which has a pretty rigorous certification process where you take a class, read a couple thousand pages, both of theology and Bible, uh, take an exam. And the, the climax of their program is you do 50 hours of counseling under an experienced supervisor. And you know, there's a certification process. I think that's a great way to learn. Uh, IBCD equips people to do that, but they also have what they call certificates. So it's most people don't wind up completing the ACBC process because it's pretty rigorous. And so we have where you take the same material, but you take kind of a shorter test and at least you can show you've learned it. So I think those are useful tools. Uh, if there's an individual pastor, it might be good for him to start by reading, you know, instruments in the Redeemer's hands by a trip or to read, you know, competent to counsel by Jay Adams and to kind of get a lay of the land and uh, IBCD has hundreds of audios online that both deal with biblical counseling uh, generally and also deal with many, many different subjects. I mean, if you're interested in post-traumatic stress, we've had a conference on that and uh, you name it. So I think 
you can learn. Again, that's a lot of people, I think a lot of pastors, they generally accept the Bible is authoritative, infallible, sufficient, and powerful. And then as things come up, they, okay, now I, you know, I've got this guy who just came back from Afghanistan and he's a bit crazy and how do I help him? And wow, there are resources out there where people, you know, use the Bible to help, right? Here I have an addict and how do biblical counselors approach addiction compared to secular methodologies? Just, just beginning with a conviction that the Bible has answers. And now I want to pursue those answers and I want to learn from others who share my perspective on scripture. You can get a long way. That's awesome, Jim. Thanks. Thank you so much. It's such a, it's such a blessing to, to get to talk to you again. I, I haven't really had a conversation like this and you had, with you in, in years and um, it's always a blessing, but um, uh, Nate, how about you? Do you have any questions at this point? You think I'm sitting here thinking of all the questions I don't want you to ask so far. You've given <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so don't, don't say what question don't you want me to ask? Uh, right. Yeah, I guess I have more of just kind of a fun question to ask you. I'm just out of my curiosity. Uh, so I'm a big, I love the Puritans. And who would you, who would you say is one of the, the best soul care uh, counselors in the Puritan era? Do you have any favorites for that? You know, Baxter is famous for what he wrote. I haven't read it thoroughly enough. I mean, I read... Uh, the Reformed Pastor, which just made me feel totally inadequate when I did. And, oh, there was another one that was well known for that. And even like you go back to, there have been books written about Calvin and Luther, even you know, before the Puritans and how, I think it's just what pastors have always done. Uh, so I don't have a great answer. I, I would, yeah. So I think through all, from through most of the ages of the church, there are pastors who have been preachers have also been shepherds and counselors. I think as evolutionism kind of affected certain segments of the church, I think Freudian, Rogerian, you know, secular perspectives on counseling affected a lot of people and people wanted to rely upon experts as if they were medically trained, you know, to help with those issues. But I think through church history and some even go back i mike if you want to talk to nate brooks who's my other professor at rts he's done work on the history of counseling and would give better answers of exactly who did what i did give a lecture on the like on a reformation day lecture one time about how all the reformers and their view of soul care and lots of nice quotes showing that they would have fit in well with the biblical counseling movement today mm. Yeah, that's so interesting. Because um, usually I think the tendency uh, for some people is to look back and, you know, with the reformers or the Puritans, and they're like, man, they're just very harsh. They're very, you know, almost terrifying. You know, they scare you so much and they make you wonder if you're even a Christian. And a lot of people don't know the Puritans have a different side to them and the reformers as well that they, that they write some of the most, you know, helpful comforting things that I've read. I mean, Richard Sibbs is somebody that comes to mind and he was, mm -hmm. you know, another really helpful uh, guy and Thomas Goodwin, you know, and all these guys that really point you to Christ in ways that are just um, very, very helpful and comforting. 
one thing about them compared to a lot of people today is most all of them were pastors primarily. Mm. We're actually dealing with people as opposed to people living in the ivory tower. And like for me here, even at RTS, I feel like I'm not a scholar. I'm an ordinary pastor, but that's probably the place I have here is I did it for 30 years kind of as an ordinary pastor, sadly not producing works like the Puritans that would last forever. Uh, but I think you know, they were pastors doing ministry. Another source I thought of is in A Quest for Godliness by Packer, which I read many years ago, when he talks about how they preached and how they cared for people, they were very careful to kind of identify different categories of people according to their spiritual condition and need. I mean, and even when you read, you know, like when you read Bunyan and he's going through people in Pilgrim's Progress, uh, this wasn't something he just dreamed up out of his head. This is being a pastor among people and seeing the kinds of folks you get. Yeah, that's so helpful and encouraging. Yeah. When I talk about uh, people who are tempted to suicide, I will read sections from Pilgrim's Progress of Doubting Castle. And when they're describing the temptation to do themselves in by poison or hanging, and it's, if you had it in modern English, it would be the same argument you would try to make with somebody today who is facing those temptations. So in Bunyan being in prison for a long time, maybe my guess was he, he knew what depression and hopelessness was that he was in Doubting Castle and uh, didn't know if he'd ever get out. Do you think, Jim, so like I think of guys, uh, not as not as many people know about David Brainerd. I read his um, journal in college and it, it was a wonderful work. I read another book. I think that uh, I'm trying to think of everybody that I can. I know David Brainerd and Charles Spurgeon. I think they both, you know, very godly men, very successful as far as like, I would say serving the Lord and, and what he gave them. You know, I believe they both, struggled heavily with depression in their life and um do you think that it's more common for a christian who is seeing a lot of success in in their work for the lord to to have deeper valleys and higher mountaintops um yeah uh zach eswine who's at last i knew was at covenant uh wrote a book called spurgeon's sorrows and interestingly enough, when he was contracted to write the book, he wrote, was just studying Spurgeon, that he went through the most awful sequence of events in his own life where I will go through everything, but he basically lost his job, his wife, everything. And so suddenly he was having Spurgeon sorrows for himself. Uh, you think of Elijah, you know, he's done great things for God and then Lord, take me, I'm ready to die. There's nobody. So it's plausible. I mean, certainly you hear of you know, famous great men of God who wrestled with depression. It's just, it's hard to statistically uh, figure that out. But I know for myself, I'll have an experience, I guess, where, where you, like when I would preach three times on a Sunday and meet with people or even counseling for hours and hours, I, I did feel particularly vulnerable spiritually in a sense, like just spent and I don't think I've struggled lately with the depths of, that Spurgeon did, but um, I'm not nearly as important as he is. So, uh, 
Yeah, so you it's an, it's, an, it's certainly, if you can't say it's more common than other people, you certainly wouldn't be able to say that it's less common than other people or that being very godly and being used of God, that does not prevent you from really wrestling with very deep depression. Sure. Uh, no, that's, that's, that's good. What, uh, I guess, what are the similar, so a lot of our conversation has kind of been reshaping some of the way that I viewed biblical counseling um, as, as much more of a thing that should be common. Like you said, it's just been done throughout church history um, and, and we should be doing it in our churches and hopefully pastors are, uh, but I'm curious here uh, in, re in reference to the relationship between biblical counseling and discipleship, would you say that there's a lot of overlap there? Absolutely. Uh, the group that the, does church equipping that I lead is called the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship. And so, I mean, counsel is a biblical word for giving advice. It can be either good or bad. We're supposed to give wise counsel, the best counsels in the Bible. Uh, discipleship is actually probably used less often, but, you know, Jesus being the model and you have pictures of discipleship to me, like the older women with the younger women, where it doesn't necessarily the young women are in crisis that their husband's beating them or something like that, but just, so yeah, it's, it's really sharing wisdom from the word of God so that people can grow spiritually. You would tend to associate the word counsel with someone in crisis and discipleship with kind of, but everybody's got stuff they need to work on. With my students, they have to do quite a bit of counseling as part of their degree program. And sometimes they're counseling each other and they all have real issues to talk about. And you probably think some of these are kind of discipleship issues where, you know, I have some trouble getting along with my in-laws and, you know, when my husband does this, I get impatient. I need to learn what it means to submit. And you know, it's not like the world's a fire, but we all have areas where we need to grow and we all can we each can benefit from having godly people who care for us and can point us to the scriptures to help us with those issues amen so uh jim my sister-in-law um i told her that i was going to be having this conversation i don't know if we'll call it an interview or anything but like i told her that uh, i was going to have the conversation with you because she got her uh, biblical counseling degree from voice uh, voice college. Sure. And, uh, you know, she, she was curious about your answer to this question and I'll, I'll throw it out there. I think we've already kind of encircled it, but, uh, this might be a little bit more of a concise answer. I think she's going for. So basically, do you have an elevator pitch on why or how, why and how the gospel speaks to our lives, story, sin struggles, and the like, is there a best way to use the gospel in biblical counseling? Well, when Paul said he wanted to come to Rome, he swan, said he wanted to preach the gospel to them, even though they were already Christians and they already had the book of Romans by the time he would have gotten there. And so the gospel, I mean, people say gospel-centered so much it sounds redundant, but that the gospel is at the core of the wisdom people need to live well. So it's not hard in my mind to connect what God has done for us in Christ to every single spiritual problem that people have, 
you know, you give me an example, I might be able to show you how. So, but I guess the elevator pitch too would be that you, you have struggles in life and we all need wisdom. And Psalm 1 describes, warns us, don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sitting as scoffers, but instead we should delight in God's law. It says if you, if the wicked are unstable like the, the chaff which is blown by the wind, but those who seek wisdom from the word of God are nourished by it and guide their lives by it, they are stable like the tree planted by rivers of water. And so uh, you, I read Psalm 19 towards the beginning, you know, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. You can say the words of Rogers and Freud are perfect to do anything. They're all, you know, messed up. And, you know, psych psychology today will be psychology, something different 20 years from now and something 20 years ago. So there's nothing like the Bible. You read what Proverbs says, how God's wisdom is more valuable than jewels and gold. That's in Psalm 19 as well. And and so we need wisdom. James says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. And I think God gives you wisdom through his word as his spirit enlightens you. And so counseling is really kind of simple. It's just people who know God and know his word well, bringing uh, wisdom from God. The chief message of scripture is redemption. It, it begins with the forgiveness of sin, but then it continues because God chose us to be holy and Christ died that we would be zealous for good deeds. And so the gospel empowers, the gospel shows us how, you know, how do I love my wife as Christ has loved me? And so why would you go anywhere else when God himself has revealed what you need? Amen. Now, Jim, uh, because I'm sure that there have been some listeners here who, you know, may have been in secular counseling before this. And, um, you know, I'm sure that they agree with everything that you're saying, but are there ever, are, are there ever any circumstances that a Christian should seek out secular counseling or a psychiatrist or medication? Because I know you kind of brought that up earlier. We didn't go down that path, but. Yeah. So my general answer would be yes. But then the particulars would depend upon the situation in detail. Uh, first of all, in my own experience, I've, I've met with people that I believe may have been having brain issues. I mean, we would all acknowledge that autism, Alzheimer's disease, are brain failure problems. And if there's medication that can help with that, I'm for it. Uh, there are other situations I've run across. I mean, schizophrenia, many people are convinced. My friends who are doctors are convinced that not everyone who gets the label schizophrenia, but there is, there are things that happen to people's brains, just like happen to other organs of the body that cause them to hear voices or imagine things or psychosis where they lose touch with reality. And if there's medical help that can help stop the voices and stop the bizarre thoughts and the detachment from reality, then I'm in favor of it. I also think it's possible for someone even to act sinfully and damage their brain such that they may need medical help. For example, I counseled a guy who blew through $50,000 worth of meth in a short period of time, and he had many of the symptoms that 
probably would sound like someone who's schizophrenic. He, you know, he had done to his brain stuff that was now making his brain malfunction. I would still be glad if a doctor could relieve any of those symptoms. So I think uh, psychiatry, you know, there, there might be differences in particular cases where they might rush to medicine and we never tell people stop taking your medicine. We don't tell people, well, so you're free to take the medicine. It's a matter of Christian liberty. We'll also say we think many problems for which the doctors are throwing medicine at, at which throwing medicine are primarily spiritual. And now even the research shows, and there are people like Alan Francis, who's as secular as the day is long. He helped to write the Diagnostic Statistics Manual, I believe, number four. And he's saying, as many other people are in the secular realm, that drugs are way overprescribed and that they really don't do much good unless people have a very severe situation for people, for example, mildly to moderately depressed. Uh, there have been studies done questioning whether there's benefit, especially in light of the side effects. And so, yes, people are free to try that. In some cases, there are medical problems. My job is to be humble and that I'm sometimes with people and it may be all spiritual. It may be spiritual and physical. It may be primarily spiritual. Uh, I don't want to call that which is sin a disease. I don't want to call that which is a disease sin. And sometimes because I'm a finite human being, I don't know exactly the details of what I'm dealing with. And they're perfectly free to get that kind of help. Uh, psychologists often make valuable observations of human behavior. I think they can have common grace techniques that may help people with certain kinds of problems. It's not gonna help them really with spiritual problems, but there was a book I was shown that there were like brain exercises and eye exercises you could do that might help someone who is prone to being obsessive compulsive. And it would be to me a common grace intervention to retrain your brain. I'm not medically qualified to say whether it actually works, but I'm open to possibilities like that. And so I think there is a place for it where we would differ with even a lot of other Christian counselors is that I see a huge place for how the Bible speaks. And I would actually see no situation in which we don't want to bring the Bible in. And I see there, there is a place for psychology and psychiatry, but it would probably be smaller than others would say. And they would see the Bible as being very small and what they've studied as being much bigger. That's all generalization. Then you'd have to go through particular cases with real people to try to form conclusions. And sometimes I'm not sure. And, and the Lord has taught me as I've had to deal with several people, I think, who really were psychotic, lost touch with reality, brains, you know, their, their brain was lying to them. And uh, if there's a doctor who can help with that problem, I'm happy for them to get the doctor and I'm, I'm, there's not always a Bible verse I can quote them that's going to snap them out of that, especially if it really is a brain malfunction. Yeah, that's that's great. Really, the reason I asked that question was because uh, I got off Facebook a while ago. I'm not I'm not on there really anymore. But, um, you know, I, I used to be a part of different Christian groups and, you know, once a year or something, you'd always see this question come up. You know, somebody will ask, oh, should should Christians take you know, um, medications and that, and then, you know, the whole chat explodes and then the moderators turn it off because it just goes nuts. And, um, I think that there are a lot of people that feel that they need to take medication and sometimes when well-meaning, but, um, maybe unhelpful 
believers say things like, well, you can never do that. That's sin. You know, for a person who's already in a state where they need to take medication, that's just um, got to be so hard and just to doubt yourself. So, you know, just to hear you, somebody who's so well versed in this, you know, confirm that, hey, there are scenarios that medication is helpful. You know, I just I hope there's somebody listening who that's helpful to. Um, Yeah, I have a friend very close friend is a medical doctor, biblical counselor, written about this. And, you know, we had a discussion and we don't remember who said it first. I would, I think it was him, but just that it's a matter of Christian liberty. The Bible doesn't say you're not allowed to do this. And so I want to be cautious not to forbid people. And I'm not a doctor to be able to do extensive evaluation of the science of it. So I think people are free. I will tell you that from what I read of the science, Many people believe they're overusing. And so I think there are two problems. There are problems on both extremes, in my opinion. There are some people who would rather take a pill than to wrestle with sin and to pray and to use the means that God has given. And they want an escape and they're mildly depressed or they're somewhat anxious. And these are issues the Bible addresses. And I'll always encourage them, let's try to move towards discipleship and spiritual growth, and you may find you don't need the pills. I've had people who started on the pills when they started meeting with me, and as their spiritual issues were dealt with, they did not want the pills anymore. Um, And so, but there have also been cases where, you know, somebody's made me feel guilty for trying the pills as if, well, you're not trusting God enough. Um, you know, I've been teaching all day, every day this week, and I've been using caffeine. <laughs> you know, you could say, well, if you had enough faith, you wouldn't need the caffeine to stay awake all day. Well, I think I'm free to do that in moderation. So I'm reluctant to judge people. And I'm also perfectly happy to counsel someone with on, on the medication. I will never tell them they should get off. If they make the decision they want to get off, I would tell them, go to your doctor and tell him that you believe that kind of the issues in your life that were causing you this depression, anxiety, whatever, you know, are being addressed and you would like to taper off under medical supervision to see how that goes. And I know people who have gotten off when the spiritual issues have been dealt with. Well, that's awesome. Uh, Nate, do you have any other questions for Jim? I I think I just about went through all of my uh, counseling questions. So um, I, you know, I could probably ask a thousand, but I know, you know, Jim's hour is up and I don't want to, you know, hold him longer than necessary. So. Okay. Well, next time, if you have me, I'll remember to grow my beard out a little more and <laughs> wear a hat. Right. So, uh, That's right. Yeah. And, uh, we'd love to have you back on Jim. I know that you're, you are big on Charles Spurgeon. Um, and I, I love Spurgeon as well. Um, so I'd love to have you back, talk to talk about him sometime as well as uh, maybe even music and him, hymns. I know you're really into that. So um, I guess uh, as we close out here, Jim, is there anything uh, you want to talk about what's going on in your life right now or any exhortation to anybody who might be listening? Yeah, I guess one thing that occurs to me would just be if you are having struggles and you wonder about biblical counsel, um, I would encourage you to, you know, First, try your own local church and the leadership there, and don't be afraid to go to them with your struggle. And so if you're experiencing severe depression, anxiety, 
if there are issues in your marriage, there's abuse, there are, there's pornography, there's misuse of alcohol, uh, the best thing you can do is to seek the godly wisdom of mature believers to help you walk through these problems. Uh, sometimes, we've had a couple cases recently where husband and wife have had issues between them that have gone on for literal decades. And it's just tragic that they haven't gotten help to find the biblical answers. Uh, you know, and I'm hopeful in both, and so you know, that God is going to help them, but there's going to, the locusts have eaten a lot of years. I think a lot of people put on a facade that everything's good and they're, they need help. And so God has given shepherds in the church. He's given godly older women in the church to provide spiritual help for people who are struggling. And then if you're strong in the Lord, uh, there's a great need in the church for you to become equipped and to reach out to those people. Uh, there are so many people who are hurting in these various ways. And when we first started ministry, I'm back mainly in Saudi Arabia, we would have people over and we just would ask people over to get to know them because they're in the church. And just like every single time before dessert started, they were pouring out their guts with their, they, just, they were desperate for help. Like when you were saying, Nate, that, oh, people don't, I think when you love people, you're hospitable to them and you engage them, you know, pastorally, they do share their struggles and their problems. And there's just such need out there and there are churches full of people who, who need shepherding. And uh, we have this amazing wealth of wisdom in the scriptures that we want to know better. And then we want the church to be better equipped to care for one another with the word of God. Amen. Jim, again, such a blessing to have you here again. We'd love to have you on whenever you, uh, you have a little bit of time for us. Um, and for our listeners, uh, thank you so much. We love you guys. And uh, we will catch you next time on Rooted in Revelation. Thanks, Thanks Jim. For having me. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah.